Welcome to the story of Miami. Episode 10, Key Wreckers. At the end of the first Seminole War in 1819, Florida and Miami became the U.S. territory of Florida. This transfer of ownership, the final time that the Florida Peninsula would change hands, would transform it almost overnight. From this point on, South Florida would be open for business and up for grabs to whatever red-blooded capitalist had the ingenuity and fortitude to hack and hew a profit out of the untamed thickets of its impenetrable wilderness. In 1822, the Florida Legislative Council held its first session. Delegates from St. Augustine, the historic capital of British East Florida, sailed for 59 days around the peninsula to get to Pensacola, the historic capital of British West Florida. The following year, delegates from Pensacola schlepped it overland for 28 days to reach the session in St. Augustine. At this session, it was agreed that a point halfway between the two capitals would be chosen for future sessions. Tallahassee, an old Appalachian settlement that had been sacked by Andrew Jackson, was chosen. A rudimentary log cabin was built, and the new capital of Florida was born. Far away in the Miami area, the primarily Bahamian community at the Cape Florida settlement was still just a small group of fishermen and shipwreck salvagers whose breezy bungalows dotted Biscayne Bay's shores. These were William de Brahms' New Providence men, the earliest of the Conch people, and the settlement at Cape Florida was the northern anchor for a population of Conchs that had established itself throughout the Florida Keys. The Conks were a remarkable people and remained influential throughout the Keys region for many years. A sun-baked bunch of seafarers, many of them were descended from pirates themselves. Others were children of English loyalists who had fled the American Revolution. It's fascinating to imagine South Florida during this time, populated by leathery English people who almost certainly spoke in a distinctive dialect, a precursor to today's Bahamian Creole, influenced both by British sailors and the accents of the enslaved African-descended population. For a while, the tiny community lived a peaceful existence, relatively undisturbed by the outside world. It would take a bit of time for this oft-forgotten backwater to attract much business interest. But not far away another burgeoning community was bringing more attention to South Florida than it had ever seen before. Key West's name most likely came about as a fortuitously accurate mispronunciation of its Spanish name, Gallo Hueso, which means Bone Key. At the remotest end of the long island chain that Ponce de Leon had once named the Martyrs, this small island occupied a wholly unique position. Jutting far out into the busy waters of the Gulf Stream, it sat at the gates of the Gulf of Mexico, at a point where the straits were their narrowest. Only 90 miles from Havana, Gallo Hueso had been home to Calusa and Tequesta settlements, and a regular stopover for Spanish fishermen and sailors. It boasted a precious resource for such a remote island, freshwater springs, 
fed by the Great Floridan Aquifer that enabled small but permanent communities to make a home there. The Keys did not officially become U.S. territory when the United States took over Florida, but the Spanish naval captain who had the deed to Cayo Hueso was happy to sell it, multiple times in fact. The earliest days of Key West's American history are marked by a drawn-out fight for the rights to the island. American John Simonton and his business partners eventually prevailed, and shortly thereafter, the American naval commander Matthew Perry solidified Simonton's investment when he officially claimed the island for the United States. The Navy, seeking to secure the critical Gulf Stream shipping route, quickly made Key West its base for anti-pirate operations in the West Indies, establishing a fort on the island in 1823. Monroe County was created that same year, encompassing all of South Florida, from Key West up to modern-day Palm Beach and Charlotte Harbor. By now the most populous area in the whole region, with a whopping 500 people, Key West was named the county seat. And suddenly, the little ragtag community was a significant administrative hub, complete with military fortifications. And with the protection of the Navy, the small community began to grow, empowered by the same age-old practice that had fueled South Florida's earlier communities, wrecking. Originally an illegal and clandestine practice, wrecking was soon legalized by the U.S. government and brought under regulation. The dangerous rocks of the Florida Reef formed the front porch of the small island community, who needed only to sit back and wait for unlucky ships to run into trouble. Here, at perhaps the most trafficked shipping corridor in the entire Caribbean, a remote outpost offering salvaging services could profit nicely by rescuing priceless cargo originating from all over the Americas. A lighthouse was soon built, a U.S. district court was established, and Key West was named the only legal port of entry for salvaged goods in South Florida. These rapid changes catapulted the small island into a boomtown, the gem of South Florida, with a bustle of activity never before seen anywhere south of St. Augustine. A host of secondary industries sprang up, including fishing and turtling, salt production, and even sponge farming. By the 1830s, only a decade after its founding, Key West was the richest city per capita in the entire United States. And so it was the Gulf Stream that finally put South Florida on the map. The economy of the whole Caribbean was carried on its current. And all this time, Key West had just been sitting there, right in the middle of it, and now, in U.S. hands, its strategic and economic value was finally being realized. Under the watchful eye of the U.S. government, Key West stuck its hands out into the stream and prospered. Among the most influential characters in Key West's rapid rise was one Richard Fitzpatrick. Raised in South Carolina by a wealthy plantation family, Fitzpatrick was a shrewd businessman who found his way to Key West in 1822, almost as soon as the territory came into U.S. hands. He brought with him a southern drawl and the planter's mentality for economics, including a reliance on slave labor. He immediately made himself the preeminent citizen of the fledgling island community, 
The culture of Florida's nascent ruling class, concentrated in the territory's northern reaches, drew primarily from southern sensibilities. And Fitzpatrick's upper-crust background brought an air of respectability to dealings in Key West. Until his arrival, the remote island had been known, if for anything at all, as a hideout for lowlives and crooks. Fitzpatrick's initial interest in Key West was the cultivation of cash crops, but he soon discovered he had a gift for the wrecking trade. He purchased and recruited crews for several salvaging boats, and through connections he made in Tallahassee, soon became the only authorized auctioneer for wrecked goods in South Florida. Wreckers all up and down the Keys, including those from the Cape Florida settlement, brought their salvage to Key West to be auctioned by Fitzpatrick. And in return for his services, Fitzpatrick received a small cut of all sales, making him a very wealthy man. As Key West's notoriety skyrocketed over the course of the 1820s, Fitzpatrick remained one of its most revered representatives. He would go on to become a sought-after independent appraiser of wrecked goods, and then to hold a string of administrative positions in local government, including clerk of the court of Monroe County and member of the first town council of Key West, and was eventually elected to the Legislative Council for the Florida Territory, becoming the representative for South Florida in the halls of Tallahassee. Fitzpatrick's influential position in the development of Monroe County and the wrecking business brought him in constant contact with residents from all over South Florida, many of whom had to make weeks-long trips to Key West from the county's far-flung settlements in order to conduct business, answer court summons, or simply to collect the mail. Fitzpatrick himself traveled throughout the region, and through his visits to the Cape Florida settlement took a liking to the land, leading Fitzpatrick to eventually pivot to South Florida for his next big venture. Meanwhile, another character was making a name for himself in the Keys. The islands were a regular melting pot during this time, attracting both northerners and southerners from the U.S., as well as Bahamians, Cubans, and others from throughout the Caribbean. In 1825, a wrecking captain named Jacob Hausman sailed not into Key West, but into St. Augustine, carrying with him the valuable cargo of the French brig Revenge, which had wrecked roughly three miles from Caesars Creek near Biscayne Bay. The courts in St. Augustine awarded Hausman two-thirds of the valuable cargo, making him a wealthy man. But the act was immediately seen as a betrayal by the people of Key West. By taking the much longer route to northeast Florida's main port of entry, Captain Hausman had scorned the South Florida administration, who accused him of theft of the salvaged property that had been run aground in their jurisdiction. To their chagrin, they found the state courts did not see things their way, and Hausman was allowed to keep his reward. It was the beginning of a long and bitter rivalry between Key West and Jacob Hausman, a New Yorker from Staten Island who, according to legend, had come to Key West after stealing his own father's schooner and sailing it all the way down the East Coast, before himself wrecking on the Florida Reef. A man whose name has gone down in infamy, Hausman contributed mightily to South Florida's early reputation as a place for unscrupulous people. He was a master of circumventing the rules, 
and in the years following his success with the Wreck of the Revenge, he pulled several more subversive tricks to cut the Key West auctioneers out of major halls. As his notoriety ballooned, so did his wealth. But Hausman was only getting started. Around 1830, he purchased a tiny island near Isla Morada, roughly halfway between Key West and Cape Florida. Indian Key, as the island was known, was barely 12 acres in size, but it would become the home of Hausman's empire. He began pouring money into its development, constructing several wharves out to the deep channels beside the island, and even laying out the streets of a very small town. He built himself a lavish mansion, a hotel, and a general store, and just like that, transformed Indian Key into a wrecker's paradise. Indian Key instantly became a major waypoint for wreckers, who could resupply and get a comfortable night's sleep there. Moreover, Hausman soon persuaded the government to send a U.S. customs officer to the island, establishing it as a legal port of entry. Suddenly, wreckers no longer had to travel all the way to Key West to offload their salvage, and Key West's 10-year monopoly over the wrecking business was broken. In fact, all wrecks to the east of Indian Key now had a much more convenient waypoint, and a huge amount of that activity was siphoned away from Key West. Now, Key West was still the administrative and economic capital of South Florida, but tensions simmered between it and Indian Key. Established under the guiding hand of Fitzpatrick, the Southern gentleman, Key West had made the Florida Keys a respectable destination. But now, this scoundrel of a northerner was tarnishing everyone's reputation. Descriptions of Indian Key from this time read like that of a boomtime frontier town of the Wild West, ruled with an iron fist by an autocratic strongman. In an environment with no highways, and where all travel was done by boat, Hausman ruled this little island like a mafioso, employing cronies and spies to ensure that he always got a sizable cut of the countless transactions on his island. While Hausman was establishing his little marine fiefdom, Fitzpatrick's ambitions had begun to turn towards the Cape Florida settlement, where he saw a golden opportunity. He determined to buy up the land around the Sweetwater River, which records show was now also beginning to be known by its modern name, the Miami River. As luck would have it, right around this time, James Egan, who had acquired a 640-acre homestead on the river's northern banks, adjacent to his father John's 100-acre tract that we mentioned back in episode 7, was looking for someone to take the land off his hands. The Egans had been lured to South Florida by cheap and plentiful uncultivated land, and had hoped to profit from the cash crops that were launching so many planters of the American South into the ranks of the wealthy. But the thin topsoil and calcium-rich rocks beneath it made it extremely difficult to establish a thriving agricultural enterprise at Cape Florida. One of Egan's neighbors described a common experience for planters at that time, remarking that, quote, In order to get rid of the trees which had been felled in an expeditious manner, he, the planter, set fire to them, and on the following morning was greatly surprised to find that he had not only destroyed the trees, but had also burnt off the whole of the soil, and left nothing but the bare rocks." End quote. The environment was better suited for kunti and tropical fruit trees than sugar and cotton, the traditional southern cash crops. 
And while James Egan tried growing crops more suited to the local terrain, unable to extract the profits he sought, and drawn by the opportunities at Indian Key, he decided to put his land on the market and move to join Hausman's Island Empire. Fitzpatrick gladly swooped in and purchased Egan's 640 acres. He also bought up the land of the other Cape Florida landowners, paying bargain prices, and even acquired a large tract at the New River, in the heart of today's Fort Lauderdale. By the early 1830s, Fitzpatrick had acquired all of the existing real estate of mainland Biscayne Bay. He was ready to return to his roots and bring the cornerstone of Southern economics, the plantation, to South Florida. Fitzpatrick had his staff and some 60 slaves moved to the Miami River and put them to work clearing the land and preparing the plantation. Hundreds of acres of land were cleared on both sides of the river, the largest removal of the natural hammock yet seen, and a plantation house was built, along with a kitchen, barns, slave quarters, and several other structures. The clear cutting yielded a wealth of valuable timber to be sold, and in its place was planted oranges, limes, bananas, sweet potatoes, and pumpkins. Over 100 acres was dedicated to sugarcane, by far Fitzpatrick's biggest crop, and fatefully, he also planted hundreds of coconuts. Though not a native tree, Fitzpatrick's coconuts would take hold of South Florida and never let go, becoming a symbol of its serene beauty forever after. Fitzpatrick was able to realize profits from his crops, and had thus succeeded where the Egans had failed, in large part because of the significant labor advantage he enjoyed. It took a lot of work to reap a commercially viable harvest from Miami's unforgiving soil. The Egans and other small landowners simply struggled to acquire enough freer slave labor due to the area's isolation. But even with his significant resources, Fitzpatrick was not making as much money as he perhaps would have hoped, and he realized that there was a much more lucrative way to profit from his large holdings, one that wasn't labor-intensive and offered significantly higher margins, land speculation. Fitzpatrick sought to take part in a process that was becoming quite common during this time, whereby speculators bought up uncultivated land on the frontiers with the aim of flipping it to hopeful entrepreneurs that wanted to take part in the prosperous southern plantation economy. Fitzpatrick used his reputation as a South Carolina born and bred plantation owner to bolster his claims, and exaggerations, about the quality of Miami's land. In a quote that is reminiscent of William de Brom's description of Miami some 60 years earlier, Fitzpatrick remarked that, quote, This country, South Florida, has heretofore been considered as of no value, but a single look at the map is sufficient to convince any intelligent man there are good lands to be found there. I have seen more of the country than any white man in Florida, and being brought up a planter in South Carolina, it is natural to suppose I must know something of the quality of the land and its fitness for cultivation." End quote. Fitzpatrick invited friends from Tallahassee to visit, and used his position on the Legislative Council to push the government to parcel out additional land to attract more planners, who would have to buy land from him. He even introduced a bill to create the South Florida Land Company, which passed and would have been empowered to buy and sell land if it was not ultimately vetoed by the territorial governor. Thus, in many ways, 
Fitzpatrick is the first true participant in an activity that would come to define Miami from the time of its founding through to today. He may have been the first person to realize that the most valuable commodity Miami had to offer didn't come from the land, but rather was the land, and the hyperbolic promises that came with it. All in all, things were really looking up for South Florida as the year 1835 came to a close. In only 15 years as American territory, the whole of the Florida Keys had lit up with activity, prosperity, and prominence. Anchored at one end by Key West, and at the other by Cape Florida, with Indian Key in between, it seemed that everyone in South Florida was prospering. Now you might think that Fitzpatrick, being a Key West man and a Southern gentleman, did not get along that well with Hausman, the conniving schemer from Staten Island. But both were pragmatic men. Hausman's rise coincided with Fitzpatrick's shift towards Cape Florida. And so they both had a vested interest in the concerns on the east side of Monroe County. It seems they both came to see eye to eye on several practical matters, not least of which was the concern that the residents of the Upper Keys and Cape Florida were severely disadvantaged by having to sail all the way to Key West to attend to civic matters. A resident of Cape Florida may need an entire month just to serve on a jury, a journey they would have to pay for out of their own pocket and at great risk of shipwreck and physical injury. Fortunately for both men, Fitzpatrick had a seat on the Florida Legislative Council, and he knew how to use it. A plan to create a whole new county began to take shape. It would be carved out of Monroe County's eastern half, separated by a straight line from Indian Key up to Cape Sable, from Cape Sable to Lake Okeechobee, and from Okeechobee to the East Coast. And the new county would be called Pinckney County. The deals were all made, the votes were all promised, the secession of Pinckney County from Monroe County was imminent. And it was at this moment that everything fell apart. On December 28, 1835, deep in the woods of central Florida near modern Orlando, a company of 110 troops, led by Major Francis Langhorn Dade, was ambushed by a band of Seminole warriors. Major Dade and his soldiers were slaughtered without mercy, with only two men making it out alive. The massacre of Major Dade and his troops would spell the end of Florida's brief glimpse of prosperity. The tensions that had slowly been building between the Seminoles and the United States since the close of the First Seminole War had exploded into the national spotlight, and a whole new conflict was about to come crashing down on Florida. Fitzpatrick and Hausman got their county, but it would not be named Pinckney County. In honor of the fallen major, Dade County was created on January 18, 1836, with its county seat in Indian Key. It would be the last major win for both men. The Second Seminole War was underway, and boy would it be a doozy. Here's an interesting fact. The Dade Massacre was huge news throughout the United States, not just in Florida. And Major Dade's sacrifice has been honored all over the country. Both Dade County, Georgia, and Dade County, Missouri, 
are also named after the fallen major. 